Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and yes, I am your host, Rob Watson. Uh, We have another really fascinating show lined up for you today. Um, I'm super, super excited. We have Jeffrey Schwartz, who is the Emmy Award-winning director of actually a number of documentaries that chronicle really key contributors to LGBTQ culture. And he has put them down for posterity in films that are fascinating and intriguing and really ones that at least every gay person should be watching. Um, But today we're going to talk about a really um, intriguing story. Um, If you are a fan of the film Sunset Boulevard, if you're a fan of the Broadway show Sunset Boulevard, um, if you are just fascinated with intriguing um, gay love stories, this documentary is one that you are absolutely going to want to see. It is excellently done. It is riveting um, and intriguing. Uh, just uh, there's, there's a whole lot of layers to it. And if you are um, a fan of Sunset Boulevard, Gloria Swanson, um, it, you, you cannot not watch this film. Um, it's part of the story that is not widely known and um, just really a, a wonderful and intriguing love story, as fascinating as the movie Sunset Boulevard itself. Uh, Jeffrey has also done a couple of key films, The Fabulous Alan Carr, um, I Am Divine. Uh, he did the uh, Tab Hunter um, uh, film. He did Wrangler, Anatomy of an Icon, about um, Jack Wrangler, the legendary porn star, um, and Spine Tingler, the William Castle story about some the old school horror movies. Um, so we've got Jeffrey waiting in the wings uh, to tell us more, and I'm very excited to talk to him. Uh, before that, I do want to bring on Brody Leck. Uh, Brody is the executive editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine, which is your source for breaking LGBTQ-oriented news. You should have them on speed dial um, or your your favorites tab or however you get your news. But um, anyway, you should be looking at them every day, new and original news stories um, there. Um, Brody, what's going on in the world? Well, we are looking at uh, the continuing repercussions of the midterm elections across the board. Um, As you know, President Former or former president, either way you want to look at it, Donald Trump uh, announced that he was running again, and that was unenthusiastically met by a lot of Republican leadership. Um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, who's hugely anti-LGBTQ, is seen as a potential challenger uh, to the nomination for the Republican Party. Uh, And although he told most people, including those of us in the press corps, to chill out, um, conversations we've had with sources 
inside Tallahassee and around the governor's camp have indicated that uh, he fully intends to make a run for the Oval. Uh, should he get into the race, a lot of uh, political uh, pundits, including myself, see Trump as increasingly damaged goods and the relative chances of him taking the Republican uh, nomination isn't really all that good. However, and here's the caveat, Trump is positioned and would, in a fit of pique, set up a third-party run uh, for the Oval, which would badly damage the Republican chances and, in fact, could probably lead uh, to uh, President Biden's reelection should the president make the decision to run again. Um, more on so, the election. Brody, yeah, yeah, I want to ask you about that, though, because, and I want to ask you this as the newspaper guy that you are. Um, Rupert Murdoch has, uh, seems like has all but declared war on Trump. Um, the New York Post did, it was almost a parody article about his, <laughs> Um, uh, announcement. It was actually hilarious to read. Um, obviously, Trump's movements and Trump's failure, whichever way that goes, spells disaster for the Republicans. Um, what 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 is your read on Murdoch's position with Trump, and how is that going to affect things? Well, Murdoch and even the positioning of of Fox and the Fox News Channel um, has started to push the former president uh, into more of an outlier position and showing him as kind of um, fringy. The uh, New York Post, which, of course, is owned by Murdoch, the headline was, Florida man makes announcement. <laughs> which, which was, I'm sorry, but most of us are still laughing at that one. Um, you know, positioning wise, the biggest danger here for a Trump run for the Oval uh, is going to be uh, the final fracturing uh, for the Republican Party. It's not really a danger, obviously, to the Democrats, but it, it's going to be a seismic shift uh, for the Republicans. And there's a lot of questions, even internally among you know, the party, whether or not um, they're going to be able to keep it together, which I can now segue uh, into the Hill. Uh, Speaker Pelosi announced uh, today that she will be ending her tenure as uh, House Speaker and as Majority Leader. And her number two uh, Majority Leader, uh, Steny Hoyer, also announced that he was stepping back. Um, so they're they're pushing the way forward basically to have you know younger voices uh, generationally uh, in there uh, Speaker Pelosi's announcement was met with accolades say for the Republicans uh, from virtually every progressive and LGBTQ uh, space including Governor Gavin Newsom of California and of course uh, the White House and the President made you know uh, a statement I think that it was a foregone conclusion. Pelosi had made a deal in 2018 uh, with the younger Democrats that she would be stepping down this year anyway. So her her stepping away from a role in leadership in the Democratic Party on the Hill really is kind of in keeping with the spirit of the agreement that she made uh, with the younger, you know, Democratic and progressive 
uh, caucuses, uh, you know, in that election cycle. Um, Harvard's interesting because when you look at the Republican side, uh, they've had some problems, uh, both speaker uh, to be or, you know, assumed to be speaker, although that's still to be seen, Kevin McCarthy, who's House Minority Leader, and the Minority Leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, uh, both had challenges. Um, uh, in McConnell's case, uh, Florida Senator um, Rick Scott, and in McCarthy's case, uh, there was a bid by Representative Biggs of Arizona, who is a former co-chair of the House Freedom Caucus. So there's a lot of doubts right now as to whether or not even McCarthy is going to be able to open rebellion when the 118th Congress sits in January. So his being speaker isn't exactly assured just yet. Uh, but that also goes to show you um, kind of also the effects of Trump from the election. Trump uh, you know, spent a lot of finger pointing and Monday morning quarterbacking as to just how much damage the former president did. I mean, virtually every one of his candidates, except for two, lost their races, okay? And he had, like, a full slate. Um, every one of Trump-backed Secretary of State positions in, like, eight or nine Republican-held states, every one of them was an election denier, and every one of them got beat. Uh, his choice for Arizona governor uh, just got trounced. Um, his choice for Senator Mark Kelly. Right who's an incumbent, nailed masters. So there's a lot of finger pointing and a lot of soul searching right now in the Republican Party um, as to just, you know, how much more damage the party can take because of Trump. And then, of course, there's the other aspect, and that is the ongoing legal battles around the former president. I mean, it stretches from New York State Attorney General Letitia James' investigation into the Trump Organization and the former president, um, all the way to, you know, the House subcommittee or full committee, excuse me, on January 6th to the ongoing investigations in Florida over uh, the potential charges against him for right. theft of government right. documents and property. So you start looking at all these things racking up, uh, you know, it gets a little complicated. Um, so that's kind of where we're at politically um, as we start. And on a happy note, I want to give a shout-out to the mayor-elect and my friend of the city of Los Angeles, Representative Karen Bass. Karen, congratulations so much. Um, and it was so cool to see your speech this morning on the steps. Uh, and you know what? This will be good. So congratulations to uh, the newest mayor-elect of the city of Los Angeles, the first woman uh, and even more importantly, the second black uh, American to hold the post after the legendary Tom Bradley uh, in the 241-plus-year history of the city of Los Angeles. So congratulations, Mayor-elect Fats. And, and someone who is on the short list uh, for the vice president nomination, um, uh, even though Kamala Harris um, ultimately got it, but Karen Bass was certainly yep. in contention there. So, yeah, she is awesome, and congratulations to Los Angeles um, for getting such a mayor. Um, So that's great. So, Brody, let's move on to the uh, Respect for Marriage Act. Well, we had a vote for cloture, which is a maneuver on the Senate floor, which means that the the debate over the bill ends. 
Now, there's been a lot of discussion back and forth on the Respect for Marriage Act. It will now move to the full Senate for a vote. It is expected to pass. Um, there's a lot of angst over some of the provisions of the bill. Some people in the LGBTQ plus activist community see it as a giveaway to the far right on religious freedom and these other things. Uh, there, you know, there was a poison pill amendment, for example, uh, that my colleague Lou Chabarro at the Washington Blade reported on that was put forward by Senator Mike Lee of Utah that would have restricted um, same-sex marriage privileges within the District of Columbia and under religious exemptions. Um, unfortunately, that amendment went nowhere. But it, it, it's, it's needed. What this basically does, and uh, Senator Alex Padilla, who's one of the co-sponsors, sits on the judiciary. He's also the junior senator from California. Uh, Alex, in an interview with my colleague Chris Kane, uh, the Blade White House reporter, um, basically said the way the bill is constructed now is to make sure that it survives a legal challenge. Um, and that's the intent. And again, this is predicated um, essentially on what happened in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health uh, decision earlier um, this past summer that, of course, basically overturned and killed Roe v. Wade. So the idea right. for the Respect of Marriage Act is to codify, you know, same-sex marriage into the federal statutes. Now, I need to note that what this essentially does is it allows some states to say, we're not going to perform same-sex marriages. But under the federal system, they're required to honor same-sex marriages from other states. So essentially what legislation does is it preserves and protects at a federal level same-sex marriage. However, it has the carve-outs for religious freedoms and the carve-outs for states' rights, and we're probably going to see the effect being almost the same as what we're seeing now with the overturn of Roe v. Wade. As you know, Rob, California voters just codified the right to abortion in the state constitution, and we weren't the only state that did that, by the way. So what you're looking at is this will protect, you know, same-sex couples and the ability to be married. Um, but it unfortunately, it, the the carve-outs, you know, are a little problematic. And, of course, you know, well, I guess it just means there's Texas yes out no, they go next door to New Mexico, you know? No, yeah, I, it's, they're, they're not all that problematic. I mean, they're nuisances compared, especially compared to abortion. I mean, abortion is... You know, it's like it's different to have to get on a plane to go get a medical procedure from another state. Um, you know, but the the difference here is similar to what it used to be with all marriage who wanted a quickie divorce. The only state that provided that was Nevada. And so people had to yep. fly to Nevada yep. to get a quick divorce. But the yeah. um, the Defense of Marriage Act under, under Clinton took away the right of you to get married in California and move to Texas, say, and still be married, which was a huge thing because what that did was it meant that any gay married couple in the, in the country was under house arrest. You couldn't take a job in Illinois if Illinois wasn't already um, authorizing your marriage that you had in California. So this takes away all of that. So it is, it is a big deal. It is not as simple as the United States just authorizes um, same-sex marriage across the board. You know, it's a little more complicated than that. 
but it is still a huge, huge protection, and people should feel good about it, in my opinion. Any other news, yeah. Brody? No, that's basically it. I think our guest waiting in the wings is, to coin a phrase, ready for his close-up. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I'm ready to give it to him because it, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I can't wait to talk about this film. So um, thank you, Brody, and well, stay, stay, stay involved here, but uh, thank you for the news. And uh, with that, um, I want to go to filmmaker, director, producer, Jeffrey Schwartz. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. So glad to be here from Nancy Pelosi to Gloria Swanson. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> we're, we're, going to, we're going to feature the classic ladies. Actually, I want to start with you. Um, you were born literally three months after the Stonewall Uprising in New York. And I'm, I'm trusting you weren't born actually in front of the Stonewall, but um, what was that like growing up in the immediate post-Stonewall era? Well, uh, thank you for outing me with my age, so appreciate that. Uh, yes, I was born <laughs> in 69, which is quite an eventful year for for gay people, but, you know, I was a little baby growing up in the suburbs, so I was about as far from uh, the Stonewall as you can imagine. I didn't hear anything about Stonewall until much, much, much later. It wasn't like, you know, growing up in the suburbs, you never really heard about these kinds of things. It was a million miles right. away. But certainly, as the years went on, uh, I learned everything about, about Stonewall, and, in fact, I was lucky enough to be there for the 50th anniversary uh, a little while back uh, before... Uh, our world changed uh, quite drastically when you could have millions of people in the streets. Um, that was quite amazing. But yeah, I, I, I guess I'm the, uh, the post Stonewall uh, generation, but I, I came of age in the early nineties. That's really my, my era of, uh, of, of, of gay. So the whole conversation about the word queer, I mean, that was going on. You remember it probably in the, in the early nineties. This, right. this is nothing new to nothing new to us. Well, yeah. And the reason I ask is because your work um, you really paint a picture and make us very aware um, and in a very visceral, hands-on way of gay life before Stonewall. I mean, you really have captured and um, solidified that part of the culture that people otherwise, without seeing some of your films, might not be aware of. What, what fascinated you about that? part of gay history as opposed to post-Stonewall? That's a great question. You know, I, I guess I'm very, I've always been fascinated with the, the ways that queer people had to navigate the world before we could be open, when there was such um, a danger to being, I mean, there was no such thing as being out of the closet, really. I mean, if you, you could lose everything, if you, if you proclaimed yourself, you had to find ways to operate under the radar and I've always been attracted to those kinds of stories because, you know, there's been such an attempt to erase our history over, over time. And it's sort of like, oh, well, post Stonewall, now suddenly there's gay people. But, of course, there's been gay people for thousands of years. And I'm always fascinated with these stories, especially love stories, which is what led me to want to make this film. Um, the love stories we never heard about, you know, because they, were, had, to be, they had to be secretive. I mean, the, the characters in, in this film... Uh, the two composers who worked with Gloria Swanson, I'm sure we'll get to them, you know, they, they presented themselves to the world as writing partners and roommates. You know, they, they could never right. um, present themselves to the world as a couple. Although, you know, people in the know knew, but it just wasn't talked about. Nobody wanted to know. 
Yeah, no, it's it, it is absolutely fascinating. Um, your one of your first works when you were still in college was working with a monster, um, Al Lewis. What what? <laughs> how did that come about? <laughs> yeah, um, when I was in film school, Grandpa Munster, his name was Al Lewis, and for people who I talk to younger people today, they don't even know what the Munsters is. But when I was growing up, it was all in reruns, and the Munsters were the the, the monster family. It was on at the same time as the Adams family, but I always liked the Munsters better, actually. And the right. guy who played the grandpa was Al Lewis. And Al Lewis, uh, in the 80s, he was still around, and he had a restaurant uh, on Bleecker Street, and it was called Grandpa's, Grandpa's Bella Hente, Grandpa's Beautiful People. And he, I don't think he owned the restaurant, but he was like the figurehead of the restaurant. It was probably mob run, to be honest. Um, but he was the figurehead, <laughs> and he would, he, you know, he would be the greeter. So people would show up at the restaurant, and, and they would come to see Grandpa. And, you know, he was a guy that everybody loved and everybody knew because when you watch reruns, he's, he's like a member of the family. So he played it up. He, he loved greeting the public, and tour buses would pull up in front of Grandpa's, and he'd get on the bus and make everybody really happy. And he was just a real great character and a real curmudgeon, you know. So I just decided this I, I would hang out there outside the restaurant and watch all this, this circus happen at the restaurant. And just figured this this really needs to be captured for posterity. So that that was the first uh, documentary that I made uh, uh, back in film school, which was uh, about a million years ago. <laughs> well, not that long, but um, it it um, yeah, it actually fascinated me because I love Grandpa Munster, and yeah, they actually have a new Munsters out on one of the streaming services. I forget which oh, one. Yes. I don't think it's doing that oh, well, yes. but um, yeah. But I loved uh, that was like, oh, man, you're right out of the shoot. You're making a fascinating <laughs> film. I mean, I, to me, that, that was like, you know, a, a, a real gem. Um, but you also apprenticed on one of my favorite films, my favorite documentaries, The Celluloid Closet. Um, what was that like? And, and how did that influence you moving forward? Yeah, that was an incredible experience. When I, came, I came out in the early 90s, as I mentioned, and part of my coming out process was coming out in conjunction with learning about queer people in, in the movies. You know, so The Celluloid Closet by Vito Russo, that was, that was like my Bible. And I was just soaking up all the queer history that no one ever taught me before and looking at movies with queer characters, some of which I had seen before but never realized the characters were sort of coded as gay, right? Um, and when I – Vito passed away – and Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman, who were very close friends with Vito, uh, sort of literally promised Vito on his deathbed that they would make a movie version of The Cellular Closet. And this was announced in The Advocate um, when I was living in New York right after film school, and I just decided I needed to go out to San Francisco and work on this movie no matter what. And Rob and Jeffrey were so gracious and invited me to come and work on the movie as, a, as an intern. So I started as an intern and got to see how a documentary by two incredibly accomplished Oscar-winning filmmakers was made from the ground up. You know, when I got there, they'd already been working on the cellular closet. And this is pre-internet, pre-everything. So they had to source all these really obscure movies and there were copies of all these a thousand queer movies on the shelf. You know, and they were researching and digging into finding clips and, and also trying to raise the money for the movie. They hadn't financed it fully. So they had just done a, um, a letter campaign, and they had a letter from Lily Tomlin, and it was sort of like an early Kickstarter where they, they direct mail, they had a direct mail list of all these gay people around the world, around the country and around the world, and they sent this fundraising letter around. And when I got there, the checks had just started to come in for, for donations from all over the world, you know, small amounts, large amounts. And that's how they got the movie uh, 
going in those early stages. And then HBO came on board and helped them finish it. And the movie is now it's a, a classic uh, queer documentary that is still still finds an audience all these years later. And it's time for a sequel, which we're working on now. So you heard it here first. Oh, <laughs> oh my God, that's awesome. I'm, I'm absolutely sincere. That is absolutely awesome. I, that movie, uh, it is a classic, but in my opinion, every queer person should see that movie. It is, I, to me, it is a required viewing to understand that arc of of gay history through the whole early um, film industry, I, I think I think it's absolutely vital. And honestly, I tend to think about that film all the time when I'm watching new movies, everything else. It's, it's like that that film practically haunts me. Um, but uh, and you know, it's like that's why I find everything that you've worked on so valuable. Because it's like they're these are these are landmark people that you know in their times from Tab Hunter in the '60s, um, even Jack Wrangler as a you know porn sex symbol was you know just a fascinating piece of of LGBTQ history. Um, how did let's let's get to the the one at hand though because I was so moved by Boulevard. A Hollywood story. I literally, and I don't want to give away the end of it, but it had me in tears at the end because um, I, mm-hmm. I feel like it, you know it was bittersweet, but you know there was a sweetness um, at the end of it. Um, how how did you come ab- about finding this? I know part of the film is you're searching through an attic looking for a box um, with the history <laughs> in it. How who who led you to that attic? I spent half my life looking at looking at boxes in attics, um, so this, this is no exception. But the, the movie is is the story of of uh, these two uh, uh, gay guys in the fifties, Richard Stapley and Dixon Hughes. They were a couple, and they were songwriters, and they had dreams of um, having a big Broadway show, and so they uh, somehow found their way to meet Gloria Swanson, who had been a silent movie actress but was probably most famous at that time in the early 50s for starring in this movie Sunset Boulevard, where she played a, a, a washed-up silent movie actress that, that people kind of mistook as thinking that she was basically playing herself, you know. And she was hardly – she was anything but a washed-up silent movie actress, the real Gloria Swanson. She was very glamorous, very much still in the public eye, uh, not doing movies after Sunset Boulevard. Uh, she didn't really have a follow-up movie after she played that part. But she was, you know, doing TV shows and – she had her own uh, fashion line. But regardless, you know, these guys met her, and she had this crazy idea to adapt Sunset Boulevard, the movie she had just appeared in just a few years before, as a musical. And so Dixon and Richard, of course, had stars in their eyes, and they thought this was going to be our big chance. So the three of them teamed up to write a musical version of Sunset Boulevard. And now so many movies are turned into musicals. But it really wasn't done back then. It was very rare, especially a movie like this, which was really right. dark. And the subject matter is really dark and a little bit scary. Um, but you know, during the course of the writing of this uh, musical, uh, the three of them, uh, Gloria had her eyes on Richard, who was uh, one of the, 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 the men in the couple, who was a very handsome former leading man um, in, on stage and on film. And so the, the experience with the three of them started to reflect more and more the story of Sunset Boulevard, which in Sunset Boulevard, Gloria's character kind of falls for a, a younger man. And kind of the same thing was playing out in real life. So I just uh, came across this story and thought it would be 
an incredible uh, movie, actually. It started off, the idea started off to be maybe I could develop this as a scripted project, a series or a, a movie. But in the course of doing all the research, I started to discover all this incredible archival material, you know, interviews with both of the guys and Gloria Swanson's archive. She left everything to an archive in Texas at the University of Texas. And all of the sheet music still survived. There were recordings of all the songs that they sang together, that they recorded together as when they were trying to uh, get financing for the musical. And I started to realize, like, this would make an incredible documentary. Um, and when we started making the doc, I really thought it would be focused on the, the musical, the writing of this musical. But it started to become more and more about Richard and Dixon, mm -hmm. who are two guys that no one's ever heard of. But it, it was this incredible queer love story right in the middle of all this craziness. And then the film ends up becoming more about them. Right, yeah. And that's one of the things I loved about the film was you really departed from essentially the premise of of the documentary. I mean, the documentary has got a big hook. You know, it's like, ooh, Sunset Boulevard, and then they were going to make a musical, and wow, you know, Gloria Swanson kind of um, turned into uh, Norma Desmond, and, um, you know, Richard turned into William Holden, and, you know, she didn't literally shoot him, but she kind of shot their relationship, you know, and so there's, there's yes. a very easy way to fall into this two-dimensional look at the reality versus, you know, the, the pitch, if you will, of the story. But what you produced in this movie is so three-dimensional. I mean, Gloria Swanson does not come off of, as a mere caricature of, you know, Norma Desmond. I mean, she is, well drawn out, you know, it's like in all her colors. And yes, there was this story arc, but she, um, you, you really felt a full presence of her by the time you get to the end of the documentary. How did you connect up with her granddaughter, who is part of the voice that gives her depth in, in the film? Oh, yeah. Uh, Brooke Anderson is Gloria's granddaughter. Gloria had several kids and and Brooke um, is uh, somebody who was, when Gloria was around, Brooke was probably in her 20s or 30s, and um, they had a very close relationship. So, of course, when you make a film like this, you, you want to reach out to as many people who had a direct relationship with the, your subject as possible. And, you know, Gloria's been gone for quite some time. There's really not, nobody around who really knew her or her contemporaries are all gone. But Brooke Anderson, as soon as I reached out to her, she could not have been more gracious. She was, she, she helped me to access the archive that I mentioned earlier. Um, and when I first met Brooke Anderson, you'll see her in the film, there's something about her voice that is so uncanny. She really, it really does sound like Gloria speaking through her in some sense, you know, she's, and she's a, just a lovely person and, and um, didn't, you know, she didn't know me. She didn't necessarily have to to trust me, but we developed a, a trust and a friendship right away, and um, she really helped to unlock the, the door to the archive, and the archive was just incredible. Going down there, if, you ever, if any of your listeners are ever in Austin, Texas, go visit the Harry Ransom Library, because they have um, a lot of uh, uh, archives from people in the performing arts, and they actually have Robert De Niro's archive, too, and um, many other folks, the David Selznick, David O. Selznick's archive is there, who produced Gone with the Wind. Anyway, all of Gloria's stuff is there, and she was kind of a pack rat, and she saved everything from, from day one of her career. She saved every canceled check and <laughs> had a million photographs, and, and um, she has uh, a bunch of files on this musical. And this, the strange thing is, you know, Gloria 
she wrote a, a very well-received autobiography in the 1980s, and this, this incident in her life was never mentioned. And I always wondered, you know, is this – how much of this is really true, you know, because right. uh, there, I didn't know at the beginning. But then going to the archives, I, I found some photos of the three of them together when they were writing the musical and letters, love letters that for some reason she had in her archives between Dixon and Richard. I don't know how she ended up having them in her archive, but anyway, it became more and more apparent that this, this really did happen and um, that this story was just going to remain buried in the, in the files and in the boxes in the attic, unless um, somebody like myself, and I guess it would have to be me to make the movie and bring it out for the world. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, and I can see why it would be hidden by her because I, you know, it's like, especially with her, um, her strength and her positivity um, in her wanting to present herself in her autobiography. It, it certainly would have been a divulgence. Um, you know, I, I mean, it was sort of a fool's errand. She knew he was gay, but, you know, she really fell in love with him anyway. Um, the relationship with Dixon and Richard, I, found incredibly moving and I mean it was a different storyline altogether but it reminded me of the relationship of the two characters in Brokeback Mountain and the Mm -hmm. ongoing attachment and love that they had that was really deep I mean it wasn't just you know two guys just talk for each other Um, what 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 can you say about their the nuance of their relationship well, you know, they were together at a very special time in their lives when they were young and they had their whole lives and their whole careers ahead of them, and they weren't very much in love. As you can, we, we do present some of the love letters between them in the film, and, and you really can see that. And I, I just, that, to me, that's, um, it's so touching to find love letters between, um, between men in that period because, you know, if anyone had found these letters, um, it, 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 you know, who are not sympathetic, to um, to gay people, it, it could have been uh, disastrous for them, you know. But they were in show business, but deeply closeted. You know, Richard, um, the, the British actor, you know, he, he was a leading man in Hollywood at a time, much like Tab Hunter, you know, where there were moral clauses in these contracts and, you know, your career could be over in a heartbeat if you were caught in a compromising, you know, situation. You know, so he was trained from a very early age to keep all of that hidden, keep everything hidden. And I think he did have conflicts within himself about his sexuality over time, you know. And you can see in the film, there's some archival interviews with him where he's asked, you know, directly about his relationship with Dixon, and he, he just can't bring himself to talk about it. He's really squirming, you know. And um, Dixon, the other gentleman, you know, he, also, he had been married. They were both married to women in different parts uh, of their lives uh, before they met each other, you know. So they um, – and Richard went on to get married after this situation later in his right. life, too. So – you know, it's 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 complicated, you know. And then, as you'll see in the film, and as you saw in the film, they do reunite later in life under very different circumstances. So, you know, I guess we all have relationships like that in, in our early years. And you sometimes you can become, you can stay best friends with your exes, and sometimes you can become mortal enemies. And in this case, it was somewhere in the middle. You know? and, um, <laughs> and it was amazing to me to, to, you know, just to track them and to see how they came together when they were in their, 50s, 60s, 70s, into their 80s. You know, they were still in each other's lives. Yeah, no, definitely. In fact, one thing that um, you you talked about in the film, or they talked about in the film, and you captured um, that 
I'm really curious as to knowing what it was, was because Richard was writing up till the very end. He had scripts that he was putting out and all this writing. And, you know, there was a comment about that he still had things he wanted to say. And he was definitely, of the two of them, the most closeted um, uh, in the relationship. And I'm just yearning to know what was in his heart and his mind that he wanted to get out at the end of his life. Um, did you have any insight into that, or is that gone with him? Well, you know, when he passed away, he was probably working on all kinds of things that, to be honest, probably most of it ended up in a dumpster. So it's just sad. It's really sad. It happens to yeah. people. And that's why, you know, it's so important to to to, um, to filmmakers uh, – to uh, that, that there is this archaeological dig, you know, whatever what 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 remained from Richard's writings is, is what I was able to find. And there were screenplays, there were books he was working on, there were and his unfinished autobiography, which is, I have sort of had fragments of it. You know, it was never really fully completed. And even in the autobiography that he was working on, he didn't he doesn't really go there and talk about his sexuality very much. You know, but I think over time, I, I think he did become a little more comfortable with it. Dixon, as you mentioned, he's much more comfortable with being gay, and, and you know he 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 was very active in the community, and he was actually um, involved with Marianne Williamson during the AIDS crisis, you know, and he he played piano at um, uh, you know different piano bars, and you know he was he was just very much into life, you know, but uh, Richard was was still portraying himself as you know he he never really let go of the idea that he could have a career again in front of the cameras, you know. And he, he really tried, much like Norman Desmond, he really tried to hold on to that. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I, we were just lucky to find what we did find from Richard's uh, archives, what was left. Yeah, it was fascinating. No, actually, I had a kind of personal hook on there because um, we, we've had Marianne Williamson on this show uh, before um, huh. for an interview after she, she got through trying to run for president. Um, and I had actually been part of the group that, went to her house before she branched out of her house um, doing kind of her her um, inspirational sessions in her house. So that was kind of a huh. really cool intersect for me personally. Not not that our listeners care about that at all, but it, just, it was a personal. No, that's, anyway. that's so, um, that's so <laughs> interesting because, yeah, I, I didn't know, you know, when um, I found out that uh, through one of Dixon's friends that he, he was, uh, he studied with Marianne Williamson in the, in the, um, in the early 80s and mid into the 80s, and the her book, uh, uh, Course in Miracles, was like a, a a Bible for him, you know. And and he really did yeah, live his yeah. life. And, and he was a very spiritual man. And I really I was very touched by his um, his spiritual journey, which is not not something I was expecting that this movie would feature when we started it. Well, I, that was that was one of the details that I loved about the movie because you you did bring in kind of all these different levels um, these people. They were full. Full, full human, you know, by the end of the, the uh, documentary. They weren't any two-dimensional or, or even going for the, the cheap story. Um, in fact, I found Gloria um, Swanson kind of fascinating because I, I don't know if you've watched any of the Real Housewife um, franchises, but, you know, one thing that they do on Real Housewives is these women get – their fame in reality TV, and then they start hawking products and, you know, the products, mm. you know, they, they use it to build, that, that's how they get rich is, you know, they build their money off of that. And I just noticed that, you know, you, you touch on it briefly in the film that 
Gloria Swanson leveraged her fame that way. You know, when they stopped calling her for for parts in the movie, she wasn't Norma Desmond and hold up somewhere. She was out at Macy's selling her perfume and, you know, her design. And, you know, she she really pivoted effectively. Um, and, and, and earlier before, you know, there was a real housewife anywhere on the horizon. So I, I just found That's true. all of that yeah. truly fascinating. Um, the real housewives are sort of our, our, our contemporary divas. You know, I don't know. If, I guess you, you really hit it big when drag queens do, and do an impression of you. And I've seen uh, drag queens do real housewives, you know, so that's when you oh, know yeah. you've really hit the, uh, the pop culture pay, pay dirt. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's so, you know, it, everything has a kind of a season and it's, it's um, reinvention. But, um, you know, they, a lot of them were, I mean, although a lot of them had other kind of Hollywoodish careers, but it really was almost like, forget the career, let's just go into the, the aftermarketing um, you know, yeah. kind of aspect to it. You know, so it's a little bit weird. Um, one part that, that was sort of reality TV-ish in the, in the documentary is when you open up your computer to talk to um, Richard's ex-wife, or I guess she wasn't his ex-wife, his second wife. Um, and she was absolutely fascinating. But when you kind of broach it in the film, it's like, I don't know what we're going to get here. Um, what was the connection there? How did you... How did you unite with her, and how did you feel after you actually did interview her? I didn't know she even existed until we were deep into making the movie, and uh, someone mentioned that she, um, that Richard had been married uh, a second time, and that um, was one of uh, Richard's friends, and he said, I, I think she might be in England somewhere. And I have a friend named Sunil who helps me when I'm looking for missing people, you know, when I'm trying to track down somebody um, for one of the documentaries, she just works her magic, and she ended up finding her for me, in, and she's living in England. And I reached out to her, and she, it took a little while because she did not have a very positive experience being married to that man. Right. And, um, you know, but after a while, you, that's what you do on all these films. You just, you, you, you have to establish a trust, and we were able to establish a trust and a friendship. And then she, as she said in the movie, she decided she was going to spill the beans, which she did. And she didn't, she preferred not to go on camera, but she said she would do it on the, on audio over the phone. And she sent me, I know their, their wedding pictures. And she sent me pictures of them together out on the town. And this was at a period in Richard's life in the sixties. This was after the, the incident with Gloria Swanson, you know, Richard was trying to reinvent himself with a new uh, phase in his film career in England. And he did have some success. So when they were married, um, you know, and she was American, but living in England, and she needed a citizenship. She wanted to stay in England, so that's what, really why she married him. And they were just really good friends. But she knew he was gay, but they never talked about it, you know. So they had a really, as she said in the film, they had a really glamorous life because Richard was doing movies and TV and traveling around the world, and she would go with him to premieres, and she had a great time until Richard's career, like Norma Desmond's and Sunset Boulevard, started to fade, and um, things... Uh, you know, did not work out between the two of them, and they went their separate ways, but they never got divorced. So she, I don't know if she's even seen the film yet. I've sent it to her, but I, I don't know. She didn't really um, uh, necessarily want to see it because it's still very painful for her, but I, I hope that she yeah. does see it. And I hope, you know, I, I think what, what I, which the reason I think she did it is because she felt that the film would give Richard some 
dignity, you know, it would maintain his dignity because at the end of his life, it was very, he was having a, a, a very, very hard time uh, just, just basically surviving, you know, and, and sleeping on yeah. couches and borrowing money for people, always broke, and, and she, she felt taken advantage of it. But that's a whole other story uh, for, uh, for another day. But, yeah, she, um, it, these little miracles happen when you make these kinds of movies, and that was one of them, finding her. Yeah, it was. It, she was. She was really warm, you know. And even with that bittersweet pain of, you know, having been in in that marriage in that way, um, but it just her approach in the film was not bitter, and it it really gave color to him um, in a in an intriguing way. I mean, and it was tragic, you know. It's like, and I guess for me in in walking through stories like the ones you're telling, um, it's a, a heartache seeing people live without the freedom that we're enjoying today. I mean, it's like, you know, where, you know, it's not perfect today, but we don't have to live under that kind of self-oppression like he put himself through. Um, and yeah. so that was, you know that that was, is really affirming. Um, one of the things that, even before I started watching um, your film, that intrigued me about this was the irony that the project that they envisioned a musical version of Sunset Boulevard actually occurred and actually was a hit. Um, and you do present it in the film. Um, but how did, was there any arc between the two at all? Or, you know, it's like, I know in the film you definitely addressed that um, uh, the gentleman in the film wrote to the paper and said, hey, there was an idea like this before, and that's how uh, he connected with Dixon. Did Andrew Lloyd Webber, was, there, was he at all conscious of it in the creation of, of his musical? I really don't know the answer. I've never um, spoken to uh, Mr. Weber about this. I hope to one day. I, I believe he is aware of this film. But um, I don't know. I think among Broadway fans and collectors and um, uh, theater people, this was known. It was talked about. So I can't imagine he didn't know about this. But I don't – but he, I'm sure he didn't, you know, access the songs that they wrote or anything like that. I, I know, I'm sure he wasn't inspired right. by their work. I mean, their, and their songs are – if you hear them in the film, they're very, very different than what um, Lloyd Webber ended up doing much later. But, yeah, that must have been for Dixon and Richard and uh, Gloria wasn't around at that point, but a very bitter pill to swallow because, you know, show business is heartbreaking. It's a, it's a cruel mistress. You know, you, you pour your heart and soul into things, and sometimes they work out, but most of the time they don't. <laughs> That's just the harsh reality. Right. Even, you know, your, your top directors all have a, a million heartbreaks along the way of things that just didn't work out for whatever reason. And that, that, um, that you know, they, they, these, these guys had stars in their eyes. They were working with a, uh, a world-famous legendary movie star. They, they thought this was going to be their big ticket. And all along the way, Gloria assured them that this, there's no way that this was not going to happen, you know. And so right. there were just multiple heartbreaks along the way. And then 20 years after, 30 years after, they all went their separate ways. Here comes Lloyd Webber, who ended up winning the Tony, and it becomes this juggernaut that's still playing and still being revived and now they're talking yeah. about doing and, a movie and, uh so <laughs> i was gonna say and and they're talking about doing a movie but um 
one of the things you you mentioned early on in our conversation that you initially approached this with the idea of doing this as a scripted project. Now, after it's done, after you have pulled out a lot of the nuance of this story, um, is there any imagination for you of doing this as a scripted project? Because uh, to me, it's, it's it has so much richness in it. Um, that I could see actors absolutely dying to play these roles. <laughs> yes, I'm glad you think. I'm glad you think so. And yes, I'm definitely um, working on bringing that uh, bringing that to life. Uh, I can't really talk about much, but there are there are conversations happening at this very moment. So we'll see what happens. Excellent. Well, I think that's fascinating, and obviously you have all the casting in mind already, and everything else that. You know, if there was any idea for Gloria <laughs> Meryl Streep, um, I can't even imagine who I would yeah. put in that role. So anyway, I was just going to ask you who you, who you'd like to see as, as Gloria, or your oh my god, I would see as Gloria. Yeah, I would. I it, to me, it was a Meryl Streep role in the in the waiting. I mean, I could just see what she could do with this. Uh, anyway, um, but. Uh, I wanted to ask you too about other uh, a couple of other projects that you have in the works, um, particularly one um, around uh, I think it's called Mineshaft, the cru- cruising murders. Um, I think that's another fascinating piece of Hollywood slash LGBTQ history. Um, how is how is that project going? That's coming along. It's um, it's a film about the making of William Friedkin's film called Cruising with Al Pacino which was a, a movie about murders in the leather community in, in, in uh, New York City in the uh, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. But it was inspired by a real murder um, of a man named Addison Verrill, who was a film critic and a writer for Variety. And uh, he uh, was murdered by a man named Paul Bateson, strangely enough, who was an extra in The Exorcist, which was also directed by William Friedkin. So... It's a very bizarre um, uh, uh, queer story uh, that I, I don't want to talk about too much, but um, it's, yeah. it's something that people have been talking about and uh, like, hey, did you know that there's a killer in The Exorcist? And did you know that the cruising was inspired by a real, a real murder? And if you look online, there's a lot of misinformation out there about it. But this film will hopefully uh, expose people to a story that they've never heard before. And um, uh, like I said, I don't want to say too much about it because it's still in the works, but I think it'll be of great interest to, uh, to your audience when we, when we finish that thing. Oh, yeah, totally. I'm, I'm totally fascinated with it, um, just, just at the description. And then you're working also on um, one about showgirls. What, what yes, is that that's one, another one uh, yes. about? <laughs> <laughs> that is a, a doc. It's called uh, Goddess, The Fall and Rise of Showgirls, and it's uh, uh, about uh, how uh, uh, this movie called Showgirls, which came out in 1995 uh, and was uh, lambasted and ridiculed upon its release for, for being, you know, at the time, people were saying this is the worst movie ever made. It's far from that. But uh, uh, it, it has developed a cult following over the years, and, and uh, lots of gay people worship that film. And... Uh, the documentary is uh, is being edited now, and it features uh, the director of the film, the writer of the film, many of the stars of the film, all the dancers dancers who are in the movie, and some uh, uh, major fans of Showgirls. So it's one of my favorite movies, and uh, and I think people will look at that movie in a new light uh, when the documentary comes out. So that's in the works too. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. I love your picker. Whatever you do to pick these subjects is like is is absolutely fascinating to me. What? How do you find them? What? What? Where does your imagination go that has you finding these different subjects? I mean, they they find me. If it, if, if I come across a story or. Uh, or, or a backstory of something that I think there's more to this than meets the eye, or there's something that people think they know the story, but they really don't, you know, like with Showgirls, like people think they know what that movie is, but they really don't, um, you know, in the case of, um, uh, of uh, uh, Mineshaft, you know, people think they know, but they don't really know. So, and these are all movies that I want to see. So if I want to see them, it must mean that I'm interested in them, and I think that there's something compelling there that I, hopefully other people will think so too. So, you know, and I, this is how I want to spend my life is making these movies, and these things take a long time to make, and you really have to be in it for the long haul. So I have to be excited about it every day to get to work. And uh, if a subject like, you know, Boulevard, that that's something that I, I, I knew I could be happy working on for every day for, you know, several years uh, to get to the finish line. So, And like I said, these are all movies that I want to see, and I just imagine the day where I could be sitting in the Castro Theater with a big audience and, and watching the movie on a big screen. And that's what motivates me is just present these things to, to our community. That That's awesome. What was, what was your first film that you did see in a big theater with people? Uh, it was pro- uh, probably, oh, that's a great question. You know, before doing features, I was doing DVD extras and the bonus content for, for the studios. And occasionally some of these would actually play on a big screen and, so I did one about the making of Philadelphia, and that was with uh, and Tom Hanks did an interview and Jonathan oh, Demme, the director and Ron Nicewaner, and that one is on the you can find it it's on the DVD and Blu-ray of Philadelphia. It's probably on YouTube. Somebody probably um, put it up there, but um, and that one actually played at at Frameline in San Francisco and a few other festivals. So that was actually the first time that I saw one of my movies, you know, at a, at a film festival. That was really exciting. But then the first feature yeah. was called Spine Tingler, then the Wrangler film that you mentioned earlier, and Right. And, uh, that there's no better feeling. That's why we need to support our film festivals, and uh, uh, that's that's the way to for us to connect to us filmmakers to connect with audiences before before the film gets distribution. And once the film gets distribution these days, it's mostly just it's mostly just streaming. Very little theatrical for films like this, small films like this. So the right. the festival run is your theatrical run, and that's the best feeling in the world to share these movies with an audience. Right. No, totally. And I have to thank you for your DVD work because I am one of those geeks who just totally absorbed the, the DVD extra um, films on, on different DVDs. So, and I'm, I'm going to have to go pull out and see my if I have the Philadelphia one in my, my oh, closet yeah. collection. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that would be cool. <laughs> um, so, I, I, Jeffrey, before we, we lose our, uh, our time here, I want to um, do the house cleaning house, house cleaning stuff. Where do we find the movies? Where, for example, where can they get Boulevard um, and um, your other films? Boulevard's available on Apple TV and iTunes. Really easy to find for rental or purchase. And we just launched on Amazon as well, so you can get it there. And it'll be uh, streaming on other platforms later. Uh, these are This is what they call it, transactional video on demand, which means you have to rent it like the old days. Um, and hopefully we'll be streaming uh, later, but I'm not sure when that's going to happen. So people want to see the movie, plunk down your 3.99, and you'll you'll be entertained for entertained for 82 minutes. It's, uh, well worth the 3.99. I'll tell you that much. Absolutely, and I will I will confirm that absolutely. Um, and what about okay. uh, some of the others? Tab Hunter, Confidential, Wrangler. Um, are those all in one place or 
are they have various? They're streamers? all over the place. They're all over. Some of them are, I mean, all of them are on iTunes to rent them. Some of them, uh, I Am Divine is streaming on Netflix right now. Uh, Tab Hunter, Vito, Wrangler, Alan Carr, those are all streaming on Amazon Prime. So all very easy to find. Um, Spine Tingler is on uh, Vimeo, that's one called Vimeo, and it's actually on DVD as well. So they're all out there. Excellent. And how do people follow you so we can watch for the um, uh, the cruising film and the show showgirls film and keep up with that? Um, they listen to your show because I'm going to hook. I'm going to come back <laughs> and talk about it. Well, they definitely should do that. Yeah, excellent. Okay, well, we'll do that. Um, this has been an absolute delight. We are running out of time. What have I not asked that we should talk about? Um, I, um, I think you covered the, the political part of the, the conversation in the beginning of your show, and I'd much rather talk about uh, 1950s uh, glamorous movie stars than um, than um, uh, what's going on in Washington. But uh, I think we're I think we covered it all. I think so, uh, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, especially for what you do, because I really, I, you know, I mean this sincerely. It's like if we didn't have someone like you capturing these nuggets of our history, um, a lot of it would just disappear. And I, I really do think they're fascinating watching them, not just for the stories themselves, but the culture that they represent and where we've come from. Um, I, I think it's invaluable. Um, and I, I really do think they should be required viewing, but, um, but especially thank you for joining us today. Um, and I can't wait to see what comes next. Um, and for our, our listeners, please do go watch Boulevard, A Hollywood Story. It is fascinating. It is wonderful. And if you like um, a good LGBT love story, it is in there. And if you're like me, have a few hankies ready by the end of it. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, again, thank you for, for coming today. I want to thank Brody Levesque for his work on the Los Angeles Blade magazine. Um, you can find the latest breaking LGBTQ stories there. You can also, if you look me up in the author section, um, I've got quite a few pieces um, published out on that publication as well, full disclosure. Um, for those of us at Rated LGBT Radio, we will be back again next week. Actually, we probably won't be back next week because it's Thanksgiving, but we'll be back the week after that with another really fascinating show. I have no clue what it will be, but I can guarantee you it will be fascinating. And we will talk to you then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. Radio.